All right. Hey, I don't know if you've noticed the Robinson changed their lights. Um, it is way darker up here and very sleepy when it gets to the teaching time. And so for a, we might for a few weeks do some teaching up here. That is for your benefit. That is not because anyone teaching has this great inner need to be on a stage. Um, I just want to quell that right now. Anyone who's teaching would much rather be right there. Um, but week after week, we've noticed like there's just like this very sleepy ambiance that takes over. And it's not because we don't have very lively teachers. At least we hope not. Uh, and so we are we're going to maybe teach up here for a couple of weeks and hopefully get the lighting situation fixed. And if not, we'll figure something out. So I thank you for your patience. I feel like a flight attendant right now. The exits are right here. Anyway, hey, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 20. And if you are physically able, I want to invite you to to stand for the reading of God's word today. So we're going to be reading Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. I know your notes section says 27. You can blame me. Then the mother, this is verse 20, of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You do not know what you're asking, Jesus said. And then he's turning to them and he says, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, meaning the other disciples heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served. Excuse me. Did not come to be served, but to serve. That would really mess up the big idea of the passage. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. For many, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this is uh, this is Palm Sunday, and it is it's a day that we are recognizing um, that Jesus is on the move, and that in fact there is a King on the move. Um, and so today is the day that we recognize. Almost two thousand years ago, Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem, and on the other side of that week, there waits betrayal. There awaits torture, there awaits death through crucifixion, but there also awaits resurrection. Um, And it is a day, this is really important, it's a day we are reminded that the crowds were cheering for Jesus. Um, And it it is a, it's a recognition that they were cheering for an image of Jesus where they were fashioning him to be a king in the image that they wanted. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to explore a little bit the ways that even Jesus' friends were doing the exact same thing as the cheering crowds. Here here is the good news uh, that that we're going to come back to at the end. Jesus is the king that we need. 
but he is not necessarily always the king that we want. We would fashion, if it was up to us, we would fashion a very different king. He would look differently. He would do things differently. The good news is that we don't get what we want. We get what we need. The good news is that we still get Jesus. So the, the question that is our loaded question, we, this is the last week of our loaded question series from the text that we just read is this. Jesus looking at these two brothers whose mom, like, and let's be honest, like these two brothers, they know their mom is about to do this. Like they're in on it. Um, it's not like they're like, I don't know what she was doing, Jesus. This, this crazy mother of ours. No, no, no. They were in on it. And he looks at them when answering the question. He turns to them and is like, can you drink? This is our loaded question. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Um, and what we're going to do today is we're going we're gonna to use that, that question that Jesus asks. And as we, we walk through these eight verses together, um, I, I think that like if we were to just read it, like I think it actually produces, there are just eight very simple, basic, excuse me, seven different questions that this text just asks, and I think we need to kind of like double click on each of them. It's just going to be helpful for us in a very like simple, rational way. But I want to, I do want to say this, like when you're learning a language, like if you're taking, if you're in Spanish, and I took like maybe 10 years of Spanish, and I still speak Spanish at a 101 level. As it turns out, I don't have a thing for languages. I'm not particularly good at it. And the thing that Paul talks about and Peter talks about is that Christianity, faith in Jesus, is kind of similar. That there's like a 101 version of it, and there's a 201 version of it, and there's a 301 version of it. In fact, to one church, he's like, look, you keep asking for meat, but what you need is, you need just like milk. You need the very basics of the gospel. What we're going to be looking at today is a little bit more like meat, and so we're, we're actually probably going up to like Spanish 301 for some of the things that we're going to look at today. But this is the good news. Every time it feels like it's getting harder and harder and harder, the thing that it does is it just underlines how simple the gospel is. That is good news for us. What, 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 it, what it shows for us today is that God, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not complex but easy to do. The good news of Jesus is simple, but hard to do. And ultimately, what the good news shows us is that the very Spirit of God is in us so that we can do this thing that feels impossible. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. We... uh, we invite you here, not because you aren't already, because we want to be fully present with what it is that you're doing. Lord, we ask through your power that we are fully available to what it is that you want to say today. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a note sheet that uh, you have that you can follow along. You can kind of see there are going to be, you can, there's a place to write what each of the seven questions are, and then a, a little box for notes for each of those, and then we're going to get to the, the last question, which is going to give us an invitation. So let's go back to uh, to verse 20. This is where we're going to pick up. So we're going to read verse 20 through 22 of our text again in Matthew. And it says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, 
and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it that you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Verse 22, you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them, the two brothers. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? Question number one, very simple question. What is the cup that Jesus is talking about? Like, what is the actual cup that Jesus is talking about? Because what Jesus is doing is he's, using, he's, he's developing a metaphor. And it's a really simple metaphor, but none of the rest of the stuff exactly makes sense if we don't get the answer to this very first question. We're just going to walk straight through these verses in almost an inductive Bible study fashion and just try to figure out and unpack some of the things that Jesus is saying here. So what's the cup that Jesus is talking about? The, the, the simple metaphor that Jesus is trying to get at is that when, when you drink something, something happens. There's like a cause and there's an effect and there's an experience through drinking. So if I'm drinking water, then hopefully like I was thirsty and now I'm not thirsty. If I'm drinking Gatorade, I'm drinking that and hypothetically, there's something about electrolytes. If I drink wine and I have too much of it, there is an effect that happens. He's like, there's this, there's an experience that happens. And what Jesus is asking is, can you share the experience that is about to happen to me. Now, there is a, in the Psalms, we get a picture of this experience that Jesus is about to go through. And it's an incredibly important one. And so you don't, you don't have to turn to it. It's going to be on the screen. There's this passage, and hopefully you can see it with me standing right in front of it. Psalm 78 says this. It says, in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out. And all of the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. I mean, at the very very bottom, there's some stuff. And they make sure to drink all of that up. Now, what the book of Romans tells us is that there is not a single person who is righteous. No, not even one. And so when this picture from Psalm 75, the Lord pours out the cup. And it says, the wicked drink it up. Who is drinking it up? Everyone. Everyone is drinking from this particular cup. Now, what I want to do, Jesus is, 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 I think, drawing a very simple metaphor. And what I want to do is I want to build on that metaphor, and I want to add some texture to it. Here's what you need to know, though. Every metaphor breaks down. I don't want to get any emails tomorrow. I don't. So I want to I want to circle the wagons on this particular one and be like, this metaphor is not going to work on every level. It's like it's going to break down. It might break down within the next two minutes, but I'm going to build on it for the next 25. I want you to imagine that in this cup is a very specific substance, and we're going to call that substance liquid sin. And once a person drinks liquid sin, it acts like a heat-seeking missile. And what it's looking for is even one other hint of sin inside of that person to attach itself. And as soon as it finds it, it's going to release a poison. And on the other side of drinking it down to the dregs, the only thing that awaits us is death. Now, you might be saying to yourself, self, that's not a vivid enough picture of what that looks like. I have good news for you. I have a video. Ladies and gentlemen, if you will, 
give a big hand. We got the video ready? For Harrison Ford in The Last Crusade. It's really Indiana Jones. I'm not a historian. I have no idea what it looks like. Which one is it? Let me choose. Thank you, Doctor. the cup of the king of kings. Eternal life. PG-13 content coming up. He did choose poorly. But remember that quote. All right? He chose poorly. So up until Jesus, up until Jesus, everyone who drinks from the cup, it was never good news for them. Because remember, if li- like in the metaphor we're developing, there's liquid sin. It is heat-seeking missile trying to find one evidence of sin in a person. And as soon as it finds it, it releases a poison, and they're done for. The poison released from liquid sin has always found sin inside of every person it could attach to. It has a 100% hit rate. But what we're really highlighting in this first question is that humanity is really in need of some good news. All right, what's our second question? If you're, you're taking notes, second box on the right. Why do they answer, the disciples, in the, the, the text that we just read in verses 20 through 22, why do they answer like, we can drink from it? What, what, what is it that they think that Jesus is offering to them that they think we can drink? Well, the cupbearer is an incredibly important person in the life of a king in the kingdom. Because what they do is they actually sit on the right-hand side of a king. And their job, and you, you, we have a story about this in the New Testament, excuse me, in the Old Testament. In the very first book in Genesis, there's a cupbearer, and their job is to taste everything that the king is going to eat or to drink. 
And the reason that they exist is what? If there's poison in the food or in the drink, who dies? The cupbearer, not the king. It is actually an incredible honor to be the cupbearer. And so when they say, yeah, we can do this, they think that Jesus is granting the command that the mother is asking for. Ultimately, what the cupbearer happens, if they don't die pretty quickly on, is they become an incredibly important person for the king because they're always beside him. Who ends up giving some of the advice that the king is going to take? The cupbearer. They think that Jesus is saying, do you want to drink of this cup? They think that they are simply being granted the thing that they've conspired with their mother to bring to him. Let's keep going. Verses 23 and 24. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the 10 heard about this, so the other disciples, they were indignant with the two brothers. Makes sense. Like this is, he's about to enter into this new kingdom that he is going to be establishing And you got these two brothers who are making a power grab above the other ten. Here's our third question. Because Jesus is saying like, hey, you will drink from the cup, but after I've drunk from it. And the question is this, what was Jesus' experience of drinking the cup like? What was his experience? Well, Jesus' experience is that he, he just kept drinking. He fully drank his cup and no sin was found. That that liquid sin that was looking as soon as it entered into him to find sin, to attach to sin, to release a poison that would ultimately take out Jesus with no hope for anything else on the other side of the grave found nothing. It meant that he drank the cup for the disciples and no sin was found. It meant that he was he drank the cup for Caiaphas, the high priest, who takes center stage four days from now. And no sin was found in Jesus. It meant that he drank from the betrayer's cup, from Judas Iscariot, and no sin was found. He drank the cup of the mob that turned against him. He drank for Pilate, the coward king, who gave into the demands of the mob. He drank the cup of the soldiers who mocked him, who ripped out his beard, who tore his back open with the whips, who drove in the nails. He just kept drinking. He drank in all of the violence and all of the hatred and all of the sickness and all of the sadness and all of the shame and all of the sin went into him and only goodness came out. That has never happened before. He drank and he drank and he drank the cup that was meant for everyone else and no sin was found in him. And then he got to your cup. And you you can almost picture him looking into the cup and knowing and knowing what it would look like for you to drink it and to know intimately the sin that it would find inside of you and the poison that it would release inside of you And he drank it anyway. He drank every cup that humanity had to offer and no sin was found in him. 
every time something was put in him, the only thing that he returned back was love. His cup was filled with everyone's cup, providing a passageway other than death and a new ending to the story. So what was Jesus' experience of drinking the cup? It was a false trial. It was his best friend betraying him. It was all of his other friends deserting him. It was torture. It was crucifixion. It was death. It was three days fighting in hell for the keys of life and death. I mean, it is so bad. He knows what he's about to step into. That right before it is inaugurated, right before it kicks off, we find him in a garden praying and almost begging his father, Father, if there is another way, can we go that way? And his response is not my will, but yours be done. And the betrayer, his own best friend, arrives with soldiers and he begins to drink from the cup. Verse 23 says this, Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom my father has prepared. The fourth question that we can ask is this, on the other side of drinking his cup, so when the disciples that he is talking to drink, what is going to be their experience? So we know what Jesus' experience is, and, and the experience that ultimately awaits on the other side of drinking it is resurrection. What is going to be on the other side if these two disciples pick up and drink from Jesus' cup? What awaits them? Well, ultimately, it's going to come down to two things. The first is that the liquid poison now examines Jesus' life, not theirs. Death for everyone who drinks from Jesus' cup will be different now. It no longer finds your sins. It only finds Jesus's. And that is exceptionally good news because he was without sin. But the second is this. The second thing that happens when they drink from the cup is that it also comes with the fellowship of sharing and his sufferings in this life. That is what comes with drinking from the cup. People will treat Christians differently because of Jesus. Romans 8.17 says this. He says, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. 1 Peter 4.13 says, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. What happens for these two disciples on the other side of sharing in his cup? Two very simple things. They get to share in his glory in the life to come, but it means that they share in his suffering in the life now. Here's a fifth question. And, and maybe like this seems really elementary, but it's, it's, it's an important question. What actually happens to the other disciples when they drink? Like if we're talking about fellowship and suffering, what happens to them? How did the disciples suffer for Jesus when they drank from his cup? Well, let's start with Peter. Peter's final ministry days, he's in Egypt. He's planting churches in Africa. He's ultimately arrested by Rome. They send him to, they send him to the capital city in Rome. 
and they, they condemn him to death through crucifixion. Peter, so overcome that he is going to be crucified in the same way that Jesus says, is like, I don't think so. Put it upside down. I don't deserve to share the same kind of death as my Lord. Andrew, Peter's brother, he ends up in Russia. And at that time, it was known as the land of the man-eaters, and he's there starting churches. He gets captured, and he is crucified. Thomas, who we'll see in a couple of chapters, who is, who's now given the moniker like Doubting Thomas, the one who needs more proof, he ultimately ends up in India preaching the good news. To this day, he is revered by the Marthoma Christians there as the one who founded the church in India, a country that is the size of a continent. And he is pierced with four spears by soldiers there, and he dies. Philip goes and has this unbelievably powerful ministry in Carthage, which is in Africa, in the north of Africa. He ends up, he moves on from there to Asia Minor. And there is, as he's preaching the gospel there, there is a woman, an incredibly important wife of a Roman official who comes to faith. The husband is furious and tortures Philip to death until he dies. Matthew, the former tax collector, ends up in Ethiopia, bringing the good news there, planting churches. And the early church memory is that he was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew goes and plants a church with Thomas in India. Then he moves to Armenia, and he ends up in present-day Saudi Arabia. And it's the first vestiges of what would become known as the Arabic Coptic Church. And there are various accounts of how he died. We're not exactly sure, but it was widely thought that he was captured by Roman soldiers and he was crucified as well. James was ministering in present-day Syria, and he was stoned and then clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot planted churches in Egypt with Peter. He later made his way to Persia to bring the gospel and to plant churches with a man named Thaddeus. When he refused to make sacrifices to the sun god, they cut him in half. Not this way but this way. Matthias, who was the disciple who was, who was, who was, if you remember in the book of Acts, he was a disciple who replaces Judas. They cast lots to select him. He went to Syria to plant churches with Andrew. He was captured and he was burned alive. John, he was boiled alive. He was forced to drink poison and he lives. He is the only apostle. We're not even covering all of them. He's the only apostle to not die of, of some sort of like barbaric, unbelievable death. He's the only one who dies of natural causes. But he dies alone on an island where he has been exiled. He receives a vision from the Lord, and he writes the last book that we have in the New Testament called the book of Revelations. When Jesus said that they would drink fully from his cup, when he talks about sharing in his sufferings, he might have been serious. So, question. The altars are open. Who wants to become a Christian today? I'm only half joking. One of them, this is, this is sort of like a side, like side comment. Like, there's, there's some of us who are like, are wired, like in the way that God has made us, to think about our faith, like first through our mind. There are other people who oftentimes think about their faith first through their heart. I'm one of the people who's wired from the mind first. One of the things that is most astonishing to me about why we can trust that the, the, the Christian faith could be credible is this. The dominant idea at the beginning of the early church was that these disciples made up the resurrection of Jesus. 
Now, I want you to think about all the things that we just talked about. All the ways in which they were tortured. All the ways in which they died. And not a single one of them changed the story. There, in, in the special forces, there is a very particular understanding. And it is this. Everyone breaks. When you torture someone, everyone breaks. At the end of the day, everyone will recant and tell them what you need to hear to make the pain stop. And 12 for 12, none of them did. Now, that does not prove that the resurrection happened, but it proved that these people fully believed that it did. That it would take a supernatural force and power within them to believe that Jesus was alive. Let's keep going, verses 25 through 28. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The sixth question that we can ask is, what kind of kingdom is Jesus setting up? Particularly in parentheses, he's kind of got to be king of it. So this is the third thing that happens from drinking from Jesus' cup. Drinking from that cup means that you are now part of his kingdom. It is a place where he is the king. And in that kingdom, everything operates differently. It's like it's flipped upside down. In this upside-down kingdom, you live by dying. In this upside-down kingdom, you rule by serving. In this upside-down kingdom, you liberate by ransoming yourself. What Jesus is talking about is there is an entire way, an entire system that the world is sent up, that it is set up. And it is all about two words, power and provision. It is all about who gets to order other people around, and who gets to accumulate wealth? It is about power and it is about provision. And the, the systems of this world are set up so that if you have power, your job is to get more of it. And if you have wealth, your job is to accumulate more of it. And you are to serve your ends to do those two things over and over and over again. And this is what Jesus says. You are not to be like that. I'm going to say that again. Because there's a very specific translation that word for word is that. You are not to be like that. Does it sound like there's a lot of wiggle room in that particular phrase? Are you to be about the accumulation of power for your ends? Are you to be about the accumulation of wealth for your ends? But let's even double click further. Are you to be about the accumulation of power and the accumulation of wealth so that maybe you can flip the system upside down? Or is it that the way that power and provision looks in this upside down kingdom even operates differently at its base form? It is never to be accumulated with one person or one select group of people, the elite. Like, it, it is why Paul is so like, it is not about a leader. It is not about a pastor. Every person is a priest. It is not about the centralization of power, but the decentralization of the power that comes through the Holy Spirit in each and every person. 
you are not to be like that. So what are you to be like? What are you to be like? Well, this brings us to our last question. Question number seven. Is this cup being offered to you? The short answer, yes. Though it may look different for the apostles, it seems like there is a very kind of like specific cup that was set aside for the apostles. But you are being invited to share Jesus' cup as well. Here's the longer answer. If you want in on the life of Jesus and his kingdom, if you went, if you want in on like the eternal life, or in this life your eyes close, and in the next one your eyes open, it means drinking all and fully from his cup. Philippians 3, 7 through 11, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this. It says this. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. It uses a different word in the original Greek. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Next slide. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. To be a Christian is to drink from Jesus' cup, not the cup that was meant for you. And in drinking from his cup, liquid sin will find no other sin to attach to you and and to release its poison, because it is not searching your life. It's searching Jesus's. And in him, there is no sin. But in doing so, we're also saying this. For the sake of Jesus and for the sake of others, in this new kingdom, I will suffer. Now, I think it's important for us to, like, how do we understand suffering for Jesus? I think at the end of the day, if you go to the next slide, there's a continuum. On one side, there's mild mistreatment. On the other side, there's martyrdom. And then there's everything in between. Now, it is, it is what some people do is they will over-spiritualize the suffering thing. And every single thing that happens, be it like a paper cut or, or a toe jam or whatever, is suffering for Jesus. I think it is important that we understand suffering for Jesus is the direct result of choosing Jesus. There will be things that happen to everyone. So like when Jesus teaches, like, look, the sun will rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. The rain will fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Tornadoes will come for the righteous and the unrighteous. Earthquakes happen for the righteous and unrighteous. Suffering for Jesus is the direct result of choosing Jesus. And so not every toe jam, not every paper cut, not every splinter is because you're suffering for Jesus. But this is what Jesus says. He says this, the world will hate you. It says this, in this life you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is what we need to like, this is what we have to wrap our mind around, because sometimes we can get obsessed with like how we're going to suffer. Or the fact that we are called to be martyrs. There are people who start to have like this martyr complex. It is not about that. It is not knowing the specifics of your suffering. It's the availability of your heart for any and all of it. 
whether I only ever experience mild mistreatment for the sake of Jesus or go all the way to 12 for 12 for what we read with the apostles. It's anything and everything in the continuum of suffering. There's a, there's a book that was written, um, in the, in the 19, I think it was in the 1950s, and it's, it's considered one of, I think one of the top 10 books that was written in the last 100, 150 years. Uh, it's by this guy named Viktor Frankl, and it's called Man's Search for Meaning. Um, about half of the book is an autobiography, and half the book is, is, is Frankl thinking through what his autobiography means. He was a, he was a, a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist um, who was a Jew and ended up in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. And he was one of the few people who actually survived. And so the question that Viktor Frankl asked himself over and over and over again when he was in the camp, and then as he came to conclusions around that question and began to serve others in that camp, and then after he left the camp and started to live again, was this. Like, how do people find meaning in suffering? Because at the end of the day, like, all of us will suffer. Not just people who know Jesus. Everyone suffers. The question is, what do you do with it? So when you suffer for Jesus, the question that we have to ask as people who are saying, I want to drink of the cup, is where is there meaning in that suffering? Now, what I want to do is I want to share something that was very, very helpful for me around this question. Uh, there, is, there is a tradition in, in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament of passing on wisdom. What I'm going to share with you, I am not telling you this is gospel truth. What I'm telling you is this is what someone shared to me. It has been incredibly helpful for me. And when I suffer things, how do I understand what is going on? So that it would produce someone who would want to serve and who would want to ransom their life as opposed to someone who would want to collect more power and more provision. And I say that as someone who does that very imperfectly. So I give you this, not as someone who has come up with this, but as someone who received this wisdom from someone else. And I would encourage you to just weigh it. So the, the question is this, how do we, how do we find meaning when there is suffering? I, I want to suggest that our enemy has a, a certain number of tools at his disposal. Um, one way of thinking about them is as if they're arrows. Uh, he, he has arrows that can be like sickness and sin and shame and sadness and death and destruction and the decaying of our bodies. Each of these kind of represent an arrow that can be flung at you. But here's the thing. Our enemy does not have an infinite number of arrows. That is the trick. Remember, the enemy, what, is, what does Miss Chetta say over and over and over again? The devil's a liar. And the, one of the lies of the devil is this. He has an infinite number of arrows to shoot in this world. There is only one person who has an infinite number of anything, and that is God. There is a limited supply of arrows at our enemy's disposal. So here is the wisdom that I, that I, that have, has been so impactful on me that I want to pass on to you to help you process when you suffer for Jesus. Any arrow of the enemy that produces suffering in you is an arrow that could have gone to someone else. Any arrow 
that produces suffering in you is an arrow that could have gone to someone else. There is tremendous meaning in your suffering because your ultimate destiny, if you have drunk fully and deeply from the cup of Jesus, is secured. The worst thing slash the best thing that could happen to you is that you die. But in the upside-down kingdom, to die is to live. Every time you suffer, every time you suffer, there is potential that this can point someone else to the same cup of Jesus. Because when we suffer, we find hope. It doesn't make sense. How is that possible? Because the world is upside down. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. I want to, I want to say to you all tonight uh, that there is an invitation. We find ourselves, though, though we are celebrating Palm Sunday this week, we find ourselves permanently on the other side of Jesus' resurrection. And we are being offered the cup of Jesus. And that cup... That cup, and this could be trite, and I do not mean it way, that cup brings eternal life. I want you to choose wisely. There are many in this world who choose poorly. They choose to live a life in the systems of this world that are completely built around accumulating more power and accumulating more provision and thinking that the world exists in a particular kind of way, but not so with you. Choose wisely. Would you choose to drink deeply and fully of the cup that brings eternal life? Some questions. Do you want to share in his glory? Do you want to share in his kingdom and his kingship? Then the question is, will you also share in his sufferings? Will your prayer be the same prayer that we will see Jesus praying this Thursday night? Lord God, I don't want this cup, but not my will but yours be done. Will you be available to any and all of the suffering that Jesus has for you so that others may come to know him and others may come to be part of his family? Tonight, wherever you are, I I actually want to very specifically invite you to make a spiritual decision. So I want you to take whatever your next step is, whatever your next step is, take your next step with King Jesus. What is he saying to you? There are some of us, the thing that he's saying to us is that we would drink from the cup for the very first time. For some of us, it's to boldly step into a new understanding of what his kingdom is. Maybe we've we've noticed that, that our lives, if you were to trace it back, if you were to look at our time, if you were to look at our conversations, if you were to look at our checkbooks, it would say that I actually am more about power and provision than anything else. And there's some of us, that decision tonight is that there is the opportunity that the Lord is showing you on the spiritual horizon that there might be suffering that is waiting somewhere on that continuum. And the spiritual decision for you tonight is, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Brothers and sisters, I want to invite you that wherever, whatever it is that the Lord is asking, whatever it is that King Jesus wants you to do, that you would do it. Wherever you're at, would we make a decision for the king?